Well, good morning, and thank you for coming this morning to attend Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I am the elder, teaching elder here at Grace, not the elder. Uh, I saw six other guys, seven other guys. No, just kidding. Um, But I am, first of all, I just want to tell you, I will not, under any circumstances, do the ice bucket challenge, all right? I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Steven Eisenberg, you go right ahead. Help your fine self, but I ain't doing the ice bucket challenge. I'm too old for that. (laughs) Too old for a lot of things, right? So, but anyway, we're glad you're here. If you are here for the very first time, we welcome you with open arms and smiling faces. Well, for the most part, smiling. There may be a grumpy face here or there, but for the most part, smiling faces. And if you are new today and you return next week, we will op- welcome you with lots and lots of food. Uh, unless you have been here before. Well, wait a minute. If you're here today, that means you're no longer a visitor. So please bring lots and lots of food. Unless you're a university freshman, your job is to eat Uh Women's soccer team, if you would, bring extra food next week because we know how much you need during this time of year. And so uh, we hope you'll be here celebrating the covenant community of God. You know, we see meals all the way from Genesis to Revelation. God's people celebrate together often around food. And we're going to do that next Sunday after the service. So I just encourage many of you, if you would, to bring extra next week, more than enough for your family, maybe for a handful more uh, when you come to our annual church potluck next Sunday. So next Sunday, um, we will feast after the service at the table. This morning, we are going to feast on the word and try to wrap our minds around the spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. Blessings that we cannot know apart from Scripture. In fact, we can't know Jesus apart from Scripture. Doesn't happen. When you hear stories about people praying, God, if you exist, if there is some higher power, reveal yourself to me, let me know you, then a missionary comes and gives the word. Always the word is necessary to know Christ, but it's necessary to know Christ at a far deeper, higher, greater level than most of us think is even possible. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This important verse is in the book of Romans, Romans ten seventeen, to be exact. Um, Romans, where we're going to be for the next two to three weeks, probably, I thought long and hard about this, probably the most important book of the Bible to understand. I know Genesis, I know the Gospel of John, but Romans spells out the Gospel in detail in such a way that we know who we are apart from the Lord, who we are in Christ. In late September, we're going to begin a study in the book of Job, and we're going to look at that ancient yet so relevant text and learn a little bit about the role that suffering plays in our lives and a whole lot about the importance of trusting God in a harsh world. 
And if you do not think this is a harsh world, chances are you've just not lived long enough. You'll get there sooner or later. So, this morning, though, in the book of Romans, if you're at grace very long, you're going to hear, you're going to realize, you're going to say, you know, I think I hear those words every week, gospel and grace. You're going to hear those words every week. Well, that's because we believe that the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ and about our lives in Christ is all of Scripture. All of Scripture points to Jesus and the fact that he came to die so that we might have life in him before the Lord for all eternity. So the gospel is everything. It's told in story form, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There are other ways of saying it. That's the one that a lot of us are kind of stuck on at the moment. Creation, God creates, there's a fall, and we're totally separated from him, but he redeems us out of our state of lostness, and then one day he's going to restore this entire world to the way it was intended to be in the first place. So the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, gives magnificent structure to the drama of redemption. Think about this. The story of redemption is like a drama unfolding. And he gives structure to it and puts it in doctrinal form so that we can understand it. We can say, okay, systematically, this is what's going on. This is how we relate to God. Our text today is in Romans 6, 1 through 14, which means we're beginning in the middle of the book. Um, And there's a reason for that. Uh, there, are, there are just a few texts that I want to constantly keep coming back to over the years. Romans 6, 7, and 8, really Romans 5, 12, and then 6 through 21, and then 6, 7, and 8. Because if you understand how God works in our... You understand a great deal about the Christian life if you get Romans 6, 7, and 8. So we're going to camp out there for the next, as I say, two or three, almost certainly uh, three weeks. So after we read our text, I'll give a bit of context from earlier in Romans to help us find our place. It is our custom to stand as we read God's Word, so I'll ask you, if you would, to please stand. Now we'll read for us Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. What shall we say then? Well, that phrase right off the bat tells you we have to have some context for what he's saying. I mean, you can't just start a conversation by saying, what shall we say then? So there's a lot that's gone before, and we'll get to that in just a minute. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Father, um, this, is, this is glorious truth. And somehow it feels at times as though it just does not correspond to the reality of our lives. Help us to know what you want us to know in order that we might recognize and realize the beauty of Christ living through us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. This past winter, I attended a conference in Minneapolis. Think about that. I attended a conference in Minneapolis in February that may call my judgment into question. But I heard a message Sinclair Ferguson preached on this text. And I have ever since, I very much wanted to share what I learned on that cold February morning with you. If you go online and you access this message, it's going to sound pretty familiar, especially in certain places. Um, Because there are some things that you just can't say any better than they're said. And it's glorious, beautiful Truth, I rarely rely on a preacher, especially preaching a sermon. I'm studying all the time. I'm getting thoughts from here or there, but it's all put together. But today, a lot of this is going to, as I say, and I, I, disclo- I want to disclose that. I always do. If I rely heavily on something, I share it with you, which is not often. But if you hear Sinclair Ferguson preach this message, it'll be with a much cooler accent. He has a Scott you know, and uh, so it's really great. And when he was preaching he, at, at the Desiring God conference, it was for pastors, and so he just jumped right into Romans 6 because it was pastors, and most of us know the context leading up to that. But it would help us to know what Paul has said in the first five chapters of Romans so we can get a sense of, of where we are today. The outline that you see on the screen is really more context than it is outline. It's not, you're never going to see an outline quite like this. It's, it's just sort of a sense of trying to get us to where we are. In the introduction to the book of Romans, Paul four times uses the word gospel in 17 verses. That's, that's fairly significant. 
that he would use that word that frequently uh, in an introduction to a book. Then beginning with verse 18 in that first chapter, Paul gives a withering indictment of all mankind, moral, immoral, doesn't matter. We're all sinners and we're all under judgment. He ends that section with 10 verses from the Old Testament. The New Testament is nothing more than the Old Testament understood in the light of the cross, in the, in the context of the cross of Jesus Christ. So um, Paul essentially says all are condemned. But then there's, there's that wonderful news in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, that Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that God requires in order for people to stand before him. And when he died, he died in the place of all who would believe that he is indeed God's son. And this is God's plan for sinners. It's that beautiful word propitiation that it's not one that you hear every day. You know, unless you're reading in, in, in a translation that uses it uh, several times in the New Testament, but particularly here where Paul is saying that, that Jesus' blood satisfied God's wrath against sin because death is required for sinners, and we're all sinners. But when Jesus died, he died in my place. Not only did Jesus' blood satisfy God's wrath, it exhausted God's wrath. You know what it's like. This is a horrible analogy because God never does it this way. All of his actions are completely righteous. But when you're angry and you just, and then you exhaust your anger and you wish you hadn't done it. Well, God's anger was righteous, but it was fully pointed towards us. And it was exhausted on Jesus. At the cross, and, and then beginning in, in, in chapter 3, verse 27, really primarily chapter 4, we're told that when we believe what Jesus did for us, then God counts that as righteousness. Here's Jesus over here living perfectly. Here we are in our awful sin over here. And when we believe, it's just as if we live that life that Jesus lives. He traded his righteousness for our sin. He took his sin upon himself. And when we believe, we are made righteous. Well, Paul begins to explain the consequences of that in chapter 5, verse 12. Verses 12 to 21. This is probably one of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture to, to fully wrap your head around. But essentially, Paul says... There are two representatives of the entire human race, Adam and Jesus. Before we know Jesus, everyone is in Adam. Because Adam sinned, all of us have to pay for sin because it's passed down to us. Listen, some of you have genetic issues that there's nothing you can do about. Absolutely nothing. And it's... You might do everything possible, but they will run their course. Those genetic problems will show themselves, and we have to, in a sense, pay for who we are made to be genetically. 
when we are born, we're born with Adam's sin upon us and therefore the condemnation upon us. John 3 says, all who believe are not condemned. Those who don't believe in Jesus are condemned already. We're already under that place of condemnation. So all are in Adam, but when we believe, we're moved from Adam to Jesus. I put Jesus over here a while ago and Jesus over here, So, because I don't want anybody to get a complex on this side over here. But we are moved from Adam to Jesus, and now we are in Christ. What Romans 6 tells us is that because we are in Christ, we don't have to live like Adam anymore. No longer do I have to sin. Now, if Romans 6 were all I planned to say about Romans, you might be thinking that I'm promoting a sinless life. But Romans doesn't end with chapter 6. Not not at all. After the strong foundation of who we are in Christ and what what the implications are for our lives, we come to the turbulent waters of Romans 7, which we will enter next week and which will, in an odd sort of way, provide comfort for those of you who are struggling, struggling with sin in this life, even though you know that you're united with Christ. Today, though, it's very important that we understand Romans 6. If you if you have any sense about of, of connection with what these chapters are about, then you'll know what I'm saying when I say some people take comfort in such comfort in Romans 7 that it's like, well, I can't help it. I'm going to sin anyway. No, no, we need to absorb the truth of Romans 6 first. Then we'll see Romans 7 and Romans 8 and how that impacts us in a very positive way. Well, at the end of Romans 5, Paul states that all who believe in Jesus are the recipients of grace. In those last two verses, here's what he says. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, the law is given so we'll know who we are. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I'm not going to take the time, but Romans 6.14, when that comes back up on the screen again a little bit later... Well, at the end of the message, look at verse 14. You're, not, you're no longer under the dominion of the law. You're under grace. Let me read that exactly how it is written. Um, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Look, when, when we live our lives as best we can so that God will say, I'm proud of you. You're okay. That's under the law. That's living in the law. And none of us can be that good. We're, none of us, we're all sin. We're, we're under condemnation. And so Paul said when the law came in, it just made us even more aware of how wretched we were. But where sin increased and it increased in my mind, grace abounded so much more. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's great news. It is absolutely great news that where sin increased, God's grace in Christ, Jesus was more than sufficient to overcome 
our sin. So Paul knew that there would be opponents of this grace theology who would say, well, look, if you tell people that grace abounds when sin is there, then they're just going to live any way they want to. You can't do that. Paul's response, such logic is unthinkable. It is, in fact, twisted. Verse 1 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That exclamation point was not in the original text, but it absolutely belongs here. Paul used a very strong expression, meganoite. When the professor, our Greek professor said, we're going to have a pop quiz, we would say, meganoite. And it just means, may it never be. No, no. A million times no. You might say that Paul was shouting at this point in his letter. Shall, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also might walk in newness of life. To those who would say, Paul, you go too far with the grace business. He would say, no, you don't go far enough. You don't understand grace. You have no conception of grace if you think that preaching grace will lead you to sin. How shall those of us who died to sin continue to live as though we're alive to sin? Dead to sin. Does that feel like your status as a follower of Jesus? Did you wake up this morning and say, I'm dead to sin? And all through the day say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm dead to sin. I see a lot of people around me who aren't dead to sin, but thank you, Lord. I'm dead to sin. You know what? If you believe that Jesus died for you, then you belong to him. And even though it may not feel like it, sin's reign of power over you has been broken. That's your position in Christ. In Christ. In all of the New Testament letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, never one time did he call people Christians. Never once. In fact, the only time you see Christians in the New Testament, it's used as a derision, a term of derision. Oh, there goes those little Christ walking around. Ooh, they're little, little Jesus is walking around. What you will find over and over and over in Paul's writings is the term in Christ or into Christ. Our union with Christ is clearly evident in Romans 6. But, but you know what? It's still difficult to understand. Even though Paul says it over and over, it's hard to understand. The great, uh, well, I say the great. In man's standards, we consider D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor at, lead pastor at Westminster uh, 
chapel in, in, in London to be one of the great preachers of the 20th century. And one time someone came up after the service and said, um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, when, when are you going to preach on the book of Romans? And he said, when I can understand Romans 6. Now, if you understand, if you know the book of Romans, that's an amazing statement. Not 5, 12 to 21, not Romans 7, not Romans 9 to 11, for goodness sake, but Romans 6. It has already been said that we are rightly related to God through our belief in Jesus. Our belief in Jesus is what makes us right with God. But verse 3 tells us that our baptism is of much greater significance to us than most of us have been taught all of our lives. Baptism is a symbol, and you've heard me tell, especially when there are children being baptized, you know, I talk about this symbol of the wedding ring, and this, and it is, it's a symbol of the wedding ring. It's our commitment to Jesus, but it's much more. It's his commitment to us as well in baptism. It's so it's so much more than just a symbol. We came into this world with the name of Adam written all over us. In Matthew 28, the first for the first time in history, someone pronounces God's name in its fullness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when you make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Baptize in that name. While baptism doesn't do anything for me internally, I mean, listen, I, I think probably most of you know someone who is depending on his or her baptism to get them into heaven. It's not going to do it. Your baptism will not make you eligible for heaven. It doesn't do anything internally in you if you don't believe it means nothing. But when you believe, again, it is so much more. Um, Baptism names me. Just like my parents named me. When my, when my parents named me after my two grandfathers, Carl Bradshaw Talley, it didn't do anything for me internally, but it shaped the course of my life. It especially shaped the course of my life since I go by Brad and Carl is my first name. And so you can imagine every class, every legal proceeding, Carl, and I'm not used to that name. And so it can be frustrating, but when I recognize the great man that my mother's father was, I'm appreciative of my name. That name represents something. And it's the same when we are baptized. All that I am is wrapped up in Jesus. This was one of those things that Sinclair Ferguson talked about that was so beautiful. When John the Baptist was baptizing sinners... And Jesus comes along and he says, baptize me. And John says, no, no, I can't do this. These waters are polluted. Thousands have come to repent of their sins. And as I baptize them, you notice how I baptize there. 
Um, I've baptized them. Their sins or this water is filthy with their sins. And there's no way I can let this water touch your holy head. And Jesus said, in essence, just do it. Even though you don't understand. And so think about those dirty waters. Jesus was baptized into my sin. And so now, from now on, everything that is mine is theirs, and everything that is theirs is mine. And everything that is mine is theirs for all eternity. That's how important your baptism is. You are baptized into a death like Jesus. Now, not it's not this, the kind of death that's going to save you or anybody else. But when you were baptized, you died to sin. That's why it's a contradiction to go on sinning. In addition to being united to a death like his, we are united to a resurrection like his. In verse 5 or 6, where is that? Verse, um, verse 5. Your position in Christ is not based on your feelings. It's based on your fact. Even though you say, oh... <laughs> There's no way, I just don't feel like that's true. Again, it's not based on your feelings, it's based on fact. While your sanctification or living a holy life is is nothing more than living in the reality of who and what you are in Christ, it is not something you're going to understand in a brief period of time. Remember Martin Lloyd-Jones saying, "I I don't get it. I don't get what all of this means. My union with Christ, how is that changing me? Don't I have to do something? Well, he tells us later, yeah, you you need to be careful how you live your life. Don't yield yourself as a slave to sin, but yield yourself as to God who has freed you from sin. Um, But there is great benefit in meditating often on Romans 6. Which is why there may be great spiritual benefit in something you have probably never considered. Remembering your baptism, no matter how old you were when you were baptized. You ever said, when someone says, how was church? You ever said something like, it was wonderful. I worshiped and sung. I prayed with the body. I was nourished by the word. I shared communion with Christ along with my brothers and sisters, and I remembered my baptism. You ever thought about that? I remembered the time that I was named. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. It's baptized. Baptism something that we do for God or is it something he does for us? Just like communion. Well, the answer to that is yes. But most of us don't think about God doing something for us in baptism and in Christ. It is the two ways we are identified with him. And according to Romans 6, and look, 
all, so much of my life, I, I, I looked at this as, as spiritual baptism only, spirit baptism only. You just can't. It's difficult to stay there and say this has nothing to do with water baptism. So baptism is it's, it's of a huge importance to us. I mean, I think we would all agree that to say, oh, I'm bound for heaven because I've been baptized. Just uh, it, it, it means nothing without faith. But it's also a mistake to think of it as nothing more than a symbol of our commitment to him and fail to realize that Christ commits himself in union with us. Through baptism. If you have trusted Christ, but you've not been baptized, please see me. We're going to hold a service within the next month uh, or so. So please be talking with me about that soon. In Paul's argument, all that I was in my union with Adam was brought to an end at my baptism. It is not Adam and my union with him that impacts my life, but it is rather my union with Christ that determines the course of of my life. I am no longer a slave to sin. Sin's authority to rule over me has been broken. And you know what it's like? You have to differentiate between the presence of sin and the power to reign, uh, the power of sin to reign over you. It's, It's like slavery in our country, that horrific period of time when we should have known better. We just should have known better. But when slaves were freed, many of them ended up right back in the same place where they left because there was this intimidation. There was security, yes, but there's a sense of, I I have to continue living like this. It's the only life that I know how to live. Did this person have the the legal authority now to make this slave stay there and to work and and to beat? No. No. But it continued on many times because they could not get their heads wrapped around the fact that I don't have to live like that anymore. Jesus has broken the power of sin in your life. And until you understand this truth, you will make no progress of eternal importance in your spiritual life. It's not a matter of you overcoming sin, but Jesus overcoming sin for you and you benefiting by your union with him. Well, how does that work? Well, I'm not sure. Just keep meditating, okay, on Romans 6. Keep at it. Just continue to to live, to soak in the truth of this verse or this passage. Well, again, you're probably thinking, you know, this sounds quite nice. But it only compounds your guilt because you're struggling with sin. Maybe a particular sin. It may be a sin that you thought was done. But now all of a sudden it's reared its ugly head. Next week uh, we're going to see why that happens. Uh, The fact that we are no longer in Adam means that we are in Christ. But it is also true that Adam is in us. And so Romans 6 says, choose not to sin. Romans 7 essentially says, you know, it's not so much a matter of choice. It's your nature. It's who you are. 
You will sin until the day that you stand before Christ. And there's so much more of that language again in Romans 7 than you realize about the fact that our hope is ultimately a future hope. We are going to be sinless when we stand before Jesus, not before. But that doesn't mean that we have to live like we've always lived, struggling with our anger, struggling with our pride, struggling with our lack of discipline, struggling with our lust, struggling with our attitudes. We don't have to live like that. Romans 6 tells us we're united with Christ. We ought to live as he lives. Romans 6, don't sin, Romans says, Romans 7, well, uh, let's think about that. And then Romans 8, the Spirit of God fulfilling the law, Him doing for us what's impossible for us to do in us, the law being fulfilled in us through Jesus. We'll tackle all of that next week and the following. In Romans six twelve, Paul uses an imperative verb for the first time. Now, the Greek language, um, verbs have not only tenses and also voice, but they have moods. We don't need to go into a deep Greek grammar course, but this is important for you to understand. The indicative mood, if a verb is in the indicative mood, it means that it's telling you a fact. It's indicating something that is true. An imperative Mood in a verb, when a verb is in the imperative mood, it is a command. And in Scripture, it's almost always based on what has been indicated before. This is true about you, your union with Christ. Therefore, don't live this way any longer. The pattern in the New Testament is always, I'm going to tell you something about Jesus. Now, this is how you should live based on it. Paul never uses an imperative verb anywhere in Romans until Romans 6, verse 12. And then he doesn't use it again until chapter 12. So think about that. Two-thirds of the book almost is just telling us truth. And then in a big way, he says, and this is how you should live based on what is true about you and your relationship with Christ. We come to church so often, and I, I recognize it, it's just great when, when a pastor says, okay, this is, now based on the truth, this is how we apply this. That's, that's important. But a lot of times, the truth itself is the application. I can promise you this. Until you absorb Romans 6, again, you're never going to make progress of eternal consequence of eternal importance in your life you can have all the to-do list how to you want to but until you know that you are united with christ it's not going to matter so how does knowing our position in christ help to bring about the reality of a holy life well just imagine i've used this analogy before it's been a while And there are a lot of you who are new. Just imagine you're a teenager living somewhere in America, and you're just living a normal life. You know, you're just like every other teenager. Uh, You get excited about some things, other things like chores and homework. You don't get excited about, you know. And you're, 
your parents do a lot for you. They make sure that you have the best education. They they make sure that you understand how to act in social settings and all of that. But it's like I'm not into all that, you know. Well, then one day you come home from school, and there are some cars parked out in in, in front of the house and you go in and you know that something is different. There are some people there and everybody stops talking. And then your parents say, you need to know something about who you are. You really don't belong to us. I mean, you've got a legit birth certificate. You've always kind of wondered, who am I? Which one do I look like? I'm not sure that I look like either one of them, but... uh, I see the birth certificate. I hear the stories about how I was born. You know, my grandparents tell me that. They say, actually, you were born into royalty in an Eastern European country. That's just the best I can do. Eastern European country. Your parents were king and queen of this country. And just days after you were born, you were murdered. And at great, or your parents were murdered. That would be difficult. You know, some sort of matrix, or I don't know. Um, you, you, your parents were murdered, and at great risk to herself, your nanny got you out alive. You were brought into America. It was best for you and everybody not to know. Your parents were murdered in a coup, but now, some 16 years later, that military has been overthrown, and within a year, the time will be right for you to assume the rightful throne, the throne that is yours in this country. So what's happened since this morning when you went to school? Nothing has changed, and everything has changed. You're still a teenager. You still have the same impulses But now, you no longer have, I don't want to cut the grass right now, I'm tired kind of an attitude. You're a king, and you must learn to be the servant leader of your people that you were called to be. You have to begin to live in the reality of who you are. Now, all of a sudden, you desperately want to know that language, that weird language that your parents have been trying to teach you since you were a child. You want to know how to act. You want to know how to interact with important people. The knowledge that you are not only a child of the king, but you are indeed heir to the throne will almost certainly impact the way that you live. The Puritan pastor John Owen told a group of pastors, you will only have two Real troubles, two pastoral problems. One, persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that they are indeed under the dominion of sin. And two, persuading those who are not under the dominion of sin that they are not under the dominion of sin. So, where are you? Under the dominion of sin? Do you know Christ? Have you ever trusted 
what Jesus did on the cross as necessary, as a necessary payment for your sin? Have you ever acknowledged your sin before the Lord and said, Oh, forgive me, God, for my sin. I am so grateful that you sent Jesus to die for me. I believe that he died that I might have life. If you've done that, you're no longer under the dominion of sin. It may not feel like it, but it's where you are. Let's pray. So what about this great truth? Of who you are in Jesus. Does it impact your life? No, no, I've sinned. I am sinning. I am struggling. I, I hate it, but I will talk about that in more detail. But you know what? All week long. Would you meditate on this truth? You know, uh, we've been on vacation and I, I am grateful, first of all, for David preaching these last two weeks. And it was really great. I heard the first one. I'm looking forward to the second one when I have time. As far as. Refreshed, I probably am as refreshed in those two weeks as I have ever been in my life, my adult life. And it struck me the last day or two that one of the reasons is because I have been soaking in the truth of Romans 6 for these two weeks. And while I cannot report that I have lived a sinless life by any means... It has changed me. It's changed my attitude. It's changed my actions. It's changed my desires. God's word is alive. I mean, you live in its truth. It changes you. From 1 John. And the word became flesh... And dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law that was given through Moses... For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Go in peace.